and welcome to Radio Maria England, where we are going to be having our Questions of Faith program. And um, we're very excited to have a new guest on the um, Questions of Faith uh, program, which happens every week this time and is rebroadcast again in the evening and is also available as a podcast. And it's um, the guest that we have today, which I'm I'm happy to be um, facilitating is Sister Anne Swales of the um, Dominicans here in Cambridge. A uh, very good morning to you, Sister Anne. Good morning, Tim. It's lovely to be with you. It really is. It's a great privilege and a joy. And I'm very much looking forward to this morning. Yes, very lovely to have you. And um, just a reminder to our listeners that what this program is about, it's a chance for you, if anything is on your mind, that you would like to ask somebody who has devoted her life to the service of the church, um, then this is a chance for you to call in and ask that question. So maybe it's something that came up today in um, in the mass readings. Maybe it's something from a conversation with a friend about the faith and you feel like you were a little bit um, stumped. You didn't know how to, how to answer a question. Here is a chance for you to bring this question to us and um, Sister Anne and myself will do the very best that we can. Before we get started, I'd like to hear a little bit about you, Sister Anne, and um, and, and sort of where your, your area of studies um, have taken you and how long you've been with Dominican Sisters. Okay, so that's, that's several questions all at once, but they're clearly related ones. So um, just to explain a little bit about who I am, um, as, as you mentioned, Tim, I'm, I'm a member of the community of Dominican Sisters here in Cambridge. I'm also the assistant chaplain at Fisher House, which is the Catholic chaplaincy to the University of Cambridge. So that's one of the things that occupies a lot of my time. And as you can imagine, that does involve a fair amount of discussing questions of faith with the students. So it's really lovely to have the opportunity to do this in a slightly different context. Um, alongside my work at the chaplaincy here, I've actually just completed... Um, a doctorate in theology and the area I was looking at particularly was um, really the question of, of suffering um, and in particular how does how does our understanding of what or rather who the church is relate to our experience of suffering does does thinking about the church for example as the body of Christ help us um, to I wouldn't say solve the problem of pain because I don't think that's possible, um, but help us to have some resources to um, look at our own suffering and the sufferings of those we love and the sufferings of the world. So that was one of the interests um, that, that, that or is one of the interests I have. It's one of the main um, um, perspectives in my studies. And I'm also very interested in um, questions around the sacraments because we can't you can't talk about the church without talking about the sacraments and, and vice versa um but really i hope that any question that people might have i don't have all the answers and i think sometimes it's really important to say that um but yes let's let's explore these questions and see where we go with them wonderful so if you if um you didn't get that it was sacraments and suffering that uh sister anne has um especially suffering has has <laughs> put her her mind to and 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 i i think um who doesn't have questions on these things and um especially suffering i think that must be you've really you've given yourself into quite a difficult arena i must say but mm -hmm. um but that is what christ came to answer especially 
in himself in in his response to suffering exactly and especially i think at this time of the church's year when we're focused towards um towards good friday for sure but also towards easter it's it's important to see i think the way that christ um christ's suffering and our suffering is related to each other and very important to see that that good friday isn't the end of the story that we have easter to look forward to at the end of lent uh, yeah. and maybe that helps us to bear our suffering a little bit so that's that's also something i was thinking about quite a lot in the thesis um yeah so before we begin with the prayer i just want to remind our listeners that um the phone lines are open and the number to dial is zero one two two three three seven five five six four that's zero one two two three three seven five five six four the lines are open right now i'll be taking your call and um then handing you over to sister anne so that she can answer your questions but um in the meantime sister anne if you wouldn't mind beginning with a prayer for us please surely in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen, amen. lord we thank you that Though we are here today in many different places and from many different places with different questions, different experiences, different joys and different anguishes in our hearts, we thank you that we are all together in the body of Christ, all seeking to know him better, to do his well better and to accept more deeply into our hearts his overwhelming love for all of us. On this day of Lent, we take stock and we look at what, where we have come from since Ash Wednesday, where we are going towards on Easter Sunday. But also on this feast day of St. Patrick, we thank God, first of all, for the lives of all of his saints, for St. Patrick in particular. And we ask that in this oasis in the middle of our Lenten journey, we may be refreshed by his example, upheld by his intercession, and know that we ourselves are to be as he was, missionaries to whatever situation God sends us today and in the week ahead. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. And we pray together in gratitude and in intercession for all our needs, asking his Blessed Mother and ours to be with us in our prayers and in our life today, as we say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the, the Lord, Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother, Mother of God, God pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you very much for that wonderful prayer. And um, again, this is Questions of Faith. If you'd like to call in and ask Sister Anne a question, um, the numbers, the number to dial is zero one two two three three seven five five six four. That's zero one two two three three seven five five six four. Before we um, go into live questions, which hopefully the lines will be um, start ringing in a moment. I have one that has been sent in via email, and this is from a certain Adrian. So thank you, Adrian, for this this question. And um, it centers around the sacraments, and um, the question says the following. When discussing transubstantiation with a Protestant, I was accused of cannibalism. 
how should I respond? Now, before I get Sister to, to tackle this one, I want to just, I, w I want you to hone in on that word transubstantiation for the listener who has never heard it before, uh, maybe not even a Catholic, and, um, and what does it actually mean? Thank you very much for that, uh, that Tim, and, and thank you, Adrian, for this amazing question. Um, so, um, first of all, yes, I think um, it is important to know what we mean and what we don't mean when we talk about transubstantiation. Um, as I'm sure most of our listeners are aware, um, all of our listeners are aware, I'm sure, that, that as Catholics, we have a profound love and reverence for the Holy Mass. And the reason that we have a profound love and reverence for Mass, of course, is that we believe that Jesus is himself present when we receive Holy Communion. Um, we don't think that the Eucharist simply is a reminder of what happened at the Last Supper, though, of course, uh, we are reminded every time we come to Mass of what did happen at the Last Supper. We don't think that the um, what we what we receive when we receive Holy Communion simply symbolizes his bread, his body and his blood. We, we believe that it really has become the body and blood of Christ. And that's really transubstantiation is the technical term for the process by which that comes about. So in other words, I think what the um, what the questioner what the questioner's questioner, his friend, his Protestant friend, was really getting at was this question of do Catholics really believe that what looks and, and indeed tastes and smells and feels like bread and wine is actually the body and blood of Christ? And if it is, then well, there's a word that we use for, for people who eat other people and it's cannibal. So that's, I think, um, that's, that's, that's what we're getting at here. The technical term transubstantiation applies to the process by which something that was bread and wine becomes, we believe, the body and blood of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. I hope that's okay as a, as a kind of very quick um, summary of what we mean by transubstantiation. Um, it is, by the way. So, so why is this not cannibalism? Um, as I hope, you know, we're all fairly comfortable in in in, in um, understanding that it's not. And understanding that cannibalism is not part of the Christian um, idea of goodness. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, that's also hugely important. If anybody leaves this, um, it, uh, you know, by the end of this. Um, discussion if anybody thinks oh you know sister Anne, a dominican sister in cambridge told me i ought to be a cannibal then i've, I've really really failed in my job haven't i um no no cannibalism is not part of the christian idea of goodness that's exactly right interestingly this idea that um what we are about at when we receive holy communion is cannibalism is actually a very ancient um mm. idea and it was around in the in the very early days of the church it was it kind of resurfaced during the era of, of, of the Re of the Reformation in in the 16th century, and I suspect that people's reasons for asking the question vary and varied enormously. It might be that somebody was actually hostile to the Catholic faith and wanted to cause trouble. At one end of the other end, I think it's genuinely puzzling for people. As I've said, we do believe that. Uh, we receive the body and blood of Christ at Holy Communion. How is this not the same as a cannibal eating another human being? 
it's a genuine question in some people's minds, I think. Um, also, if that's really what you're saying, either it's wicked or it's stupid. You know, yeah. it just it doesn't kind of seem to make much sense to a lot of people. So there could be various reasons for asking that question. And I guess so one thing I'd want to say right at the beginning is that to accuse Catholics, Catholic sacramental theology, if you like, of cannibalism is kind of paying us a backhanded compliment yeah. because it is saying, yeah, OK, we get this. You actually believe that this is the body and blood of Christ. Um, it wouldn't make any sense to accuse us of cannibalism if all we believed was that we were reacting the Last Supper or all we believed was that somehow this is symbol symbolic and nothing more than symbolic. So it is it's an acknowledgement in a way that we mean what we say when we say that we receive the body and blood of Christ in Holy Communion. And that's already, I think, a very important starting point for any conversation with non-Catholics, particularly with non-Catholic Christians who share our commitments to believing that what the Bible says is true. Um, so that's one thing. I think it's, it's an interesting um, starting point. But I think where I'd want to go next with this idea of the difference between eating the flesh of, of your dead enemy or whatever, on the one hand, and eating, eating Christ in Holy Communion, is that, of course, what we receive at the Mass isn't the dead body of Christ. Mm. Um, we can only receive Holy Communion at all because Jesus has gone through death. He's passed through death to resurrection. Uh, every Mass is indeed um, astonishingly, time works in a really funny way around the sacraments. And every time we go to Mass, we are indeed standing at Calvary, but we're also participating in a resurrection banquet. And when we receive Holy Communion, it is the res risen, ascended and glorified Jesus whom we receive, not the corpse that was taken down from the cross on the evening of Good Friday. Um, so it's very, very unlike anything that might happen um, when people indulge in cannibalism. That's, that's I think, one hugely important thing to say. Yeah. The other thing I'd want to say um, with, you know, having, you know, emphasised and, and underlined in, you know, pink highlighter three times that cannibalism is not a good thing and that we're not advocating it in any way, shape or form for anybody who is in the slightest doubt about that. Hmm. I think it's also interesting, though, um, bear with me on this. I promise I'm going somewhere good with it. Um, what cannibalism actually does have in common with what we're doing at the Mass? Okay. Because I think one thing that certainly the, um, the church has always taught is that whilst the fullness of the faith and the fullness of truth resides in our Catholic faith, Human beings have always longed for and striven to know God and striven to know the truth and striven to know the power and the strength of God upholding them. And so even in the most distant ways, and sometimes in some utterly wicked and obscene ways, such as cannibalism, what you see in a way is, again, a kind of backhanded compliment to what we believe. Because we believe that in the Eucharist, we are given the strength, the grace, the very life of God himself. And in a sense, there's a kind of very, very distorted, perverted um, echo of that in the idea that ritualistic cannibalism is um, 
consuming the enemy often in order to gain their strength. So it's a kind of a it's a it's a horrible blasphemous distortion and mirror image of the goodness of the mass. And of course, where um, cannibalism, you know, there have been rare occasions in history, perhaps not that rare, but we you know the, the ones we know about are rare, where people have resorted to cannibalism because they're starving. Well, again, what does that remind us of in the Eucharist? It reminds us that the Eucharist is absolutely basic to our spiritual life. It nourishes us. We, we, we are spiritually starved if we cannot receive Holy Communion. Of course, as we all discovered during the pandemic, the grace of God doesn't desert us because we can't receive Holy Communion. It comes to us in other ways, but that's very, very difficult for us because the main way, the normal way in which Catholics experience the grace of God is through the sacraments. It really does nourish us. We really are fed in the Eucharist. So um, to that degree and to that in that way, I think we can look at um, all these terrible, horrible practices of cannibalism, ritual cannibalism, and at all these terrible situations in which people in times of war and siege conditions and, and so on have had to resort to it or, or, or else die. We can look at those things and say, gosh, that can be actually another reason for my gratitude for the immensity of God's gift to me, God's pure gift, God's strong gift to me of himself in the Eucharist. So I think whilst this question may have been meant in a spirit of genuine puzzlement, it may have been spent, meant in a spirit of some kind of difficulty with the church's teaching i think actually we can we can look at this question and we can use it as the beginnings of a starting point for deep deep gratitude um for what the sacrament really is which is absolutely the opposite of cannibalism yes i i agree and i sometimes think that this reaction of um of adrian's friend um just for those who've, who maybe have just started listening and, and are completely perplexed as to why we are speaking about, about <laughs> these things. Um, this all hinges on the idea of transubstantiation. And, and one of our listeners has, has written in and said that a Protestant friend of his uh, objected to the teaching of transubstantiation because he said, it, um, if we are eating the body and blood of Christ, then surely we are... are guilty of cannibalism and um, as sister has been so uh, sort of carefully going through why it is not the case um, we at the same time I think that this this person who had this objection actually has a much more uh, sort of real response than people who just have an indifference to it I think there's, there's something about that that starkness of the, of, of what's actually happening, the reality of what's happening there. Um, I think that to accuse Catholics of cannibalism is far closer to the truth than to than to just say, well, this is just a sim symbolic thing that we're doing. Mm. I have a image that I've sometimes um, re reverted to that I would love to know what, what your thoughts are. Um, but I'm going to first have a music break and um this is adorate devote um by saint thomas aquinas um very fittingly uh, chosen because of the topic that we're speaking about and um if you have a comment or a question 
then you can call in the number zero one two two three three seven five five six four. That's zero one two two three three seven five five six four. And after this song, um, I'll be taking your call and I'll be sharing my thoughts on um, a good way of thinking of the Blessed Sacrament. Welcome, you're listening to Radio Maria, and this is Questions of Faith, a program in which you call in and ask us a question, and we have a guest on air, um, as we always do every week this time, um, and today it is Sister Anne Swales of the Order of Preachers, um, that is what OP stands for, in case you didn't know, and um, we have been speaking about sacraments, specifically about the... Um, Blessed Sacrament and about transubstantiation and um, somebody had written in and said that uh, when speaking to a Protestant about this he was accused of cannibalism um, and I had a, a little image that I wanted to share so I think this this idea is um, I, want to, I want to see what you think of it but there's another image in which we do um, 
something similar and and yet we do not call it cannibalism and that's when a child is breastfeeding hmm oh my goodness that's such a beautiful idea um and i mean Normally, it takes me ages to think of anything to say in response to a question, but I, I have stuff to say about that immediately because maybe not terribly well formed or articulate, but immediately because um, in the Middle Ages, this was um, an idea that was kind of played with quite a lot by various writers. Um, and one in particular was Julian of Norwich, who, yes. well, as it happened, also featured in my thesis. <laughs> um Julian talks about how uh, a mother feeds her baby with breast milk as we are fed in the Blessed Sacrament mm, with the blood. Of I didn't know that. Yeah, okay. and of course, was there was. I mean, I don't know as much about this as I should probably, but my understanding of kind of medieval understandings of physiology is that. Um, there was this there was this idea that that what breast milk actually was was the mother's blood converted into breast in, in into milk it's why also of course or at least it's not exactly why but it's related to that other great medieval image of um the mother pelican feeding her yeah. her chicks with 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 milk with, with blood from her breast obviously birds don't produce milk but you know it's 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 a it's a connected kind of idea i think and yes this idea that um and that was in the, the hymn we just heard isn't it indeed the, it is the, yes the that's right yeah. um yeah, absolutely um which incidentally yes not only was it, is it fitting because it's about um uh, it's about the Eucharist, but it is, of course, also kind of fitting for me because it's by St. Thomas Aquinas, so it's yes. a Dominican thing. <laughs> Just had to get that in there. Um, but, but yeah, so, um, and as you rightly say, and I'd never, I'd never joined these two ideas together in my head before, but it's a beautiful one. We don't call this cannibalism. We call it, there's something sacrificial about it, for sure. Mm. Um, but it, and that also is very important. But it's, it's, it's sacrifice. It's also gift of the mother to her child. Um, I think it's a beautiful image of the Eucharist. Um, yeah, and one that has deep, deep roots in 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 our tradition. Yeah. Um, um, there's. I know that Augustine speaks about this, if I am remembering correctly, um, where he actually uses the image of Christ on the cross. You know, where he is there, completely exposed to the world as being um like a mother kind of bearing her breasts um which is remarkable you know to to connect that mm. with with the eucharist which is made available to us through that sacrifice absolutely that i didn't know i would be fascinated at some point if you could let me have the reference for that in st augustine because mm. i didn't know that and that's that's such a beautiful thing um and it's interesting because i sometimes um some of our listeners who who are in cambridge may know this particular um, image, but I'm actually quite often struck when I'm praying in, in our chapel here at Fisher House. I'm, I'm speaking to you today from from the Catholic chaplaincy in Cambridge by our crucifix, which is um, a, a very good reproduction of a 13th century Italian crucifix. Um, it's it's it does look when you look at the crucifix, you can you can kind of see echoes of that imagery uh, in the way that. Christ's body is kind of leaning towards us um, and that part portion of his body is is kind of prominent um, and I often I have often thought about that in you know in that connection it's a it's a very very beautiful thing um, and as I say absolutely 
to bring it back to you know the, the thing that troubles people is no we wouldn't call that cannibalism would we we'd call yep. it something entirely else no we wouldn't um, there's the aspect of the living mother as well you know the fact that she is obviously alive um and and this is what we emphasize about about christ and i think this is also fitting as we are about to come to uh, the fourth sunday of lent mm -hmm. which has this really beautiful passage from um isaiah 66 in the introit where we get the latare jerusalem mm. and that is you know has this image of of the mother consoling the child um yeah. and um it is sort of the prime passage where people which people will turn to when they wanting to kind of emphasize the the um the, the fact that there is there isn't an absence of the feminine in yeah. in god but mm -hmm. um that the feminine does reflect something of of god's nature yeah um so yeah, a lot of a lot of things to think about and talk about mm. there. We still mm. um, have the lines open. We still are waiting for your questions, and um, the number is zero one two two three three seven five five six four. Lots of things to talk about. It's St Patrick's Day, and um, it's also right in the middle of Lent. And um, we, if you have a call and you'd like to call in, you're welcome to do that. And I actually have one on the line, so let's see. Radio Mary, hello. Hello. Oh, hello. This is Hi. Helena. Hello, Helena. You are on air. Do you have a question for us? Yes, yes, yes. I've got a question. I have. Um, I've learned more about these sisters that live in Bristol that support people. They basically have a care home where they support the people there living there. And then earlier this week, I had a sister that came on that she helps set up food kitchens and work in food kitchens. And this got me thinking about something you shared with me once, Tim, about a hermit who just stayed by himself and lived by himself and, and prayed by himself for the world and all the world's issues. What's the point of hermits, though? Shouldn't This is just Helena, little Helena going, why, why aren't they out there serving the world? Can just being by yourself praying just be enough of a service? Right. This is a question about the contemplative life and the most extreme form being the eremitical life or the life of a hermit. Um, interesting. So, I do not remember telling you that story, but um, it doesn't surprise me that I did. Sister Oh, Anne. it was a great story. It was about how um, you only knew he was alive if his dinner was taken away. Oh. <laughs> yeah. No, this is a contemporary story, actually. This is not an, an ancient story. Yeah. Um, Sister Anne, do you want to give it a shot? And then I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot to you. Sure. So the question really, as you say, is um, what is the contemplative life and what's the point of it um, in a world where there is so much evident suffering, so much evident need, and it might seem um, quite a common sense thing to say, well, why don't these hermits and contemplatives you know, come out of their hermitages, come out of their monasteries, and actually do some good in the world. I, I, I'm guessing that's that's the kind of a summary of of the question. Um, in a way, actually, I want to take it back to something that I was going to say but forgot to say when we were talking about why the Eucharist isn't isn't cannibalism, which is that one of the differences between not just holy mass and cannibalism, but what we do when we receive holy communion, and when we what we do when we receive 
anything else into ourselves as food is, and again, I think this is St. Augustine, um, who, who kind of formulated this first. What happens when we eat normally is that what we eat becomes part of us. But when we receive Holy Communion, we become part of what we eat. It's something which deepens our um, deepens our membership of the body of Christ. We, we, we become um, more deeply embedded into Jesus himself, into Christ himself. And that is really at the basis of this idea of the church as the body of Christ. It has a couple of kind of connected ways of being relevant to this question of why don't the hermits get out there and do some good one is quite simply that um within the body of christ and you know this is something you find obviously most um prominently in saint paul in the first letter to the corinthians within the body of christ we all have different functions just as the different organs and limbs and and cells of, of our of our natural bodies have different functions but all of those functions are of course um ordered to the common good of the body or in the case of the church the common good of the church so the hand can't function without the foot and the foot can't function without the eye and so on but if the body was nothing but eyes it wouldn't be any good and if it was nothing but etc 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 so one way of looking one way of kind of one way into this question i think would be to say that within the body of christ which is the church of course, we are all um, privileged and given the duty of praying for the needs of the world. Um, but that the contemplative, those, those who follow a strictly contemplative vocation who spend their entire life in a monastery or as a, as a hermit praying, um, they are called upon to do that in a particularly intense way. They are, as it were, that organ or limb of the body of Christ who has that particular um, vocation. Uh, another thing just quickly to say about that, um, what that vocation involves and requires is that, of course, it's possible to um, kind of enter into that vocation as an escape from something which is actually much more obviously your calling within the church. Um, I think if you try that and you enter either a contemplative monastery or a hermitage, you probably won't last very long, quite yep. honestly, because it's a very specialised, it's a wonderful vocation for those for whom it is their vocation. I think it would send most of the rest of us quite mad, quite quick, quite quickly. Um, but, you know, it would be possible at least to go into it with those kinds of um, mistaken or, or, you know, evasive attitudes. Real contemplatives, those who are really dedicated to that life, as it were, full time, um, are not doing it in order to escape from anything. They're actually doing it um, for us, for the rest of the church and for indeed for the rest of the world. And not only will they therefore often um, have to think in a prayerful way about the sufferings of others, uh, they will also often be appealed to for spiritual direction, for people to help, for, to help people deal with their own sufferings and so on. So it has that kind of actively helping dimension mm. to it. But the other thing I'd want to say is that that kind of life is in itself, um, we've used the word once or twice already this morning, is sacrificial. It's an offering of an entire life to god mm -hmm. and it's an offering of 
the suffering that certainly comes as part and parcel of that life to God for the sufferings of the world. So it has, and that again is, is because we're all members of the body of Christ, our suffering actually is part of his suffering in a sense, part of the suffering that redeemed the world. And that includes the suffering and the commitment of um, contemplative nuns and monks and also hermits. It's not that they're not out there doing it. Um, they're actually out there doing it in a particularly intense way. A friend of mine talks about contemplative religious as being on the front line. Um, and I think that's a nice image for a good image for it. Um, but yes, it's all about um, it's all it's all about the different vocations within the body of Christ, I think. Um, yeah. So that's where I'd start with it. I don't know if that's helpful. Is that helpful, Helena? Yes, thank you, Sister Anne. <laughs> I have a few thoughts on the matter as well, but I'm going to keep you waiting and I'm going to play a song by Tenebrae. This is the Miserere May by Allegri. And um, it's one of these wonderful pieces that comes up during Lent. And um, the lines are still open if you'd like to call in and ask a question to myself or Sister Anne. Um, it's 012233754. That's zero one two two three three seven five five six four, and this is Tenebrae singing that beautiful song by Allegri with that hauntingly beautiful high C, the Miserere May. much as I could carry on listening to that for the rest of the morning, um, we are going to come back to Questions of Faith, the program where you call in and ask us a question. And um, Helena called in a little earlier on the number 01223 375 564, if you don't have that. Um, 
and uh, she was asking about the the life of a contemplative and specifically of hermits who uh, leave the world in quite a uh, physical sense in 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 that they uh, separate themselves from contact with other people and seek the Lord and pray and and um, uh, had some very interesting uh, very thorough thoughts about that and I had a few of my own um, so one of the things I think is is and and sister you can chip in if if, if I say anything incorrect here um, about about these people who to take these uh, this decision is that um, they often become a source of spiritual strength to the rest of the church. So even mm -hmm. if they are separating themselves, you, you hear stories and, and stories have, have often become quite legendary of, uh, um, you know, the, these hermits who gain this great spiritual insight. And, um, mm -hmm. and perhaps one of the most famous stories would be St. Anthony of, of the Desert, where St. Athanasius would go you know, and visit him, and people would would gain from his wisdom and things like that. So they, there's that the value there, um, and then the I think it also just highlights the fact that if we think that prayers are effective, um, it makes sense that we would uh, have certain people in the body of Christ mm -hmm. that would devote their lives to this. Mm -hmm. um, if you have just a few people in in a group and you have uh, a few tasks um, let's say you have more tasks than you have people then everybody will be taking on more than one task but if you have a large group and um, you can start you know divvying up the tasks to the people in the group and you can then say okay and you are going to focus on just this one thing and that doesn't mean that the other things are not important it just means that um, you have the luxury of being able to 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 uh, separate the tasks like that, and I think that's one of the things that that um, the contemplative life speaks to. And then the last thing that I'd say is that it can actually be a selfish thing, and I think that that's why it needs to be discerned. Is is mm. that people can go into contemplative life because they want to, um, you know, they don't want to deal with with other kinds of activities and. And that's why it needs discernment. And mm -hmm. in such cases, it either can go really sour or it yeah. it just won't last, you know. And, mm -hmm. and um, so those are, are my thoughts. I don't know if you have if if you have anything <laughs> to add there. No, I mean I think you've said significantly more succinctly what I was kind of striving striving. Oh, I wouldn't go that far. No, I, I, but I think you're <laughs> absolutely right. I think I think that's exactly it. Um, yeah, and I I think um, with regard to that last one that that um, people can enter into this way of life or can attempt to enter into this way of life. Um, I think all everybody's motives are always a bit mixed, right? As well as I guess that would be the other thing that would be important to say about yeah. it, this with regards to discerning a vocation to this form of life. Um, that you know you might think that your motives are mixed. Uh, you, sorry, you might think that your motives are pure. Uh, you might um, be given a chance to find out, and you might find out that actually my motives weren't quite as pure as I thought they were. But you know, by the grace of God, they become purified in the course of living that life. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, a, a slightly different example of that um, would be, although it's within 
the context of contemplative religious life, of course, famously, St. Therese of Lisieux um, entered the Carmel. Um, and when she was a very, very young, well, adolescent, really. And um, later on, when she writes the story of the soul, she says that um, initially her attraction to Carmel was an attraction to suffering. But what she discovered as she developed in her spiritual life and in her religious life is that what was important was not being attracted to suffering, which in itself is obviously a bit pathological, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. What was important was being attracted to the will of God, which, I mean, clearly living according to the will of God brought Therese a lot of suffering. But what attracted her, she realized, was... Um, simply doing the will of God, whether that was standing at the foot of the cross, being on the cross, being in the tomb, or um, or rising from the dead, as it were. It was the entirety hmm. of um, of the Paschal mystery that, that was God's will for her, as it is for all of us. Um, and that's what but she didn't have very long in which to purify her her vocation obviously she died when she was 24 but within those nine years in 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 the Lysia Carmel there was that progress that development so you know there could always be that and the reason I'm saying that uh is that of course I think that's relevant not just to those who are enclosed contemplative religious it's 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 an important thing for all of us to remember whatever our vocation um that yes we all want to serve the Lord we all want to do that with a pure an undivided heart but that's a process um yeah. so yeah that's just very encouraging sprang to mind as you was as you were talking um yeah we have a, a caller on the line and we also have a, a question that's been sent mm. in i'm going to go for the the call first this is alessio hello hi alessio where are you calling from hi um i go from uh, cambridge lovely and do you have a question for sister anne yeah i got actually two questions about okay this. let's it's, take the first it's one on the and same then... subject Good. It's on the same subject. Great. Do them one at a time. All right. Okay, great. So my first question is for uh, Sister Anne. Hi, Sister Anne. Hi, is... Alessio. Good to hear from you. Hello. Hi. Uh, basically, it's uh, concerning the charisms. So if, if you read the scriptures, it says, uh, Jesus said, whoever believes in me will uh, heal the sick, etc., etc." Mm -hmm. Um And it... And the um, church fathers in the in the first few centuries were quite you know familiar with these things, and in fact, like like you know the first Christians were were, were you know doing all these things and helped uh, spreading Christianity. Um, but it seems that later uh, along you know the centuries, it is has been somehow like you know pushed on the side. So. I was wondering whether it, uh, you could elaborate on that um, and explain maybe if um, if you know scriptures have been um, interpreted uh, correctly and um, and why the charisms you know have been uh, like you know, pushed aside. So the question so from question. Alessio is is regarding. Uh, sort of a prominence of the uh, charisms of healings and those kinds of supernatural uh, mm. miracles from in the first century and and why is it that we do not see them so much today or why have they been pushed yeah. aside yeah. is that, is yeah, that a, right. does that summarize it for you? yeah yeah yeah, okay, yeah, yeah good yeah, yeah, so yeah, let's thank you sit down 
That's a brilliant question, and I'm afraid it's one that I don't feel very adequately <laughs> equipped to answer because um, I'm not a church historian of the relevant period, for one thing. Um, um, and I, I wonder whether it's not... I mean, there's, there's certainly a lot in what you say. OK, I'm not in any sense disagreeing with it. Um, but I do also wonder whether kind of a complementary truth might be that sometimes these things... It's not necessarily that they go away, but that they operate in maybe slightly more hidden ways. And that um, God does, I think. Um, obviously, the Holy Spirit guides the church. We, we have to believe as Catholic Christians that the Holy Spirit is always guiding the church. And therefore, I think we, we do have to believe that um, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are forever therefore they are eternally valid and always in operation but that for some reason that we don't quite understand there are eras in the history of the church when god wants those things to be more prominent and i think we can see evidence these days of a, a lot of interest in the supernatural or the evidently supernatural gifts and charisms um you know so this is maybe an era in which they are perhaps not as prominent as they were in the very early days of the church, but more prominent than they've sometimes been in the past. I don't know. I have, I have to be honest and say, I don't know why it is that uh, that, that is the case. But if we are um, committed to what the church teaches us about herself, I think one thing we definitely can't say is that this was because the church kind of suppressed these things in an immoral way or a way contrary to um to the will of god because the church is our mother our teacher the, ch the church um the church does which isn't of course to say that individual catholics individual um um teachers within the church can't make profound and serious errors but it it cannot surely be the case that the church has just been totally wrong mm -hmm. uh for centuries so it must i think be about different aspects of um what is always god's will for the church being more or less prominent in different periods um i'm afraid that's the best i can do with it tim i don't know what sure. you would add. yeah I'll, I'll jump in a little bit um so i think that one of the reasons why we don't see as many healings in in my humble opinion is because we don't ask for them um and i think that people i i know who are quite big on healings and and it's one needs to be cautious with these things because we, we we shouldn't focus too much on on uh kind of supernatural uh manifestations they th that's another point that i wanted to make that they're signs of of things of other things like the the greatest miracle is the conversion of a, of a sinner's heart like that's where um and and the church has never been um uh you know that's always been present within the church is is the, otherwise we wouldn't be alive um the church wouldn't be alive at least but um i think that we do need to ask more the people who ask receive we do not receive because we do not ask and um and then the other thing is that i i've noticed that within catholic uh circles that that it's not that um these miracles are not present it's just that they're not as uh they're not spoken about in the same way the the emphasis doesn't fall on the miracles in the same way that they do in some other christian communities and that that i found quite edifying like um that often a person will be 
kind of remembered for their holiness of life and not necessarily for the miracles that they performed, even mm. though those miracles may have been there. Um, you have another question, Alessio. Yeah. So I, I want um, us to get to that. Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, Is that helpful, like, though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, first, like, you know, first of all, I'd like to add, uh, adjust that, that like, you know, one of the reasons why I'm asking, you know, ask this question is the fact that, like, you know, nowadays, you know, science has such a prevalence and there are so many people who do not believe because of science that maybe there is a need for that, not, not necessarily for, for, you know, the people who already, you know, believe or, or for, the, for the healing of, of, you know, the person, but just so that, you know, uh, like you know, the supernatural can bring like uh, mm-hmm. non-believers, non-believers to conversion. So that's my thinking. I don't know whether mm. it is right. Is right. That's so, a very interesting like, point. Yeah. But let's, so get on to your, let's get on to your get on to your next to question because we, we don't want us to run out so, of time. Yeah. Yeah. So my, sec- my my second question is is basically um, because we know that for like you know for a person to be like you know, declare saints, they, they need to have uh, two proven uh, miracles. My, like you know, my question is, in in the scripture, we we do have examples of of people who, um, like uh, you know, like you know, perform signs. Like like you know, for example, you know, Caiaphas, who you know prophesied. Uh, I mean, that's in, in the scriptures. That's uh, it, it. It is best for a man to die, and and. You know that you know for a whole nation, like not like not perish. So it was you know prophesied that he was saving uh, you know humanity, and and also in in the, in the book of Revelation, uh, Jesus uh, you know cast away people who you know you know had you know performed signs. So it seems that God is faithful, uh, but you know the fact that uh, someone performed signs. It doesn't seem necessarily a sign of holiness. I mean, excellent like, question. Guess that Judas... Yeah, excellent question, Alessio. Yeah. So, so yeah. you're saying that we we use signs in order to to prove that a person is a saint, but then we have this seeming contradiction that there are signs attributed to people who are clearly not saints. So how do these two things yeah. match up, Sister Anne? Gosh, <laughs> that is a sorry. really interesting question. Um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, it's no, wonderful. No, don't apologize. No, absolutely don't apologize. It's really, really wonderful. Um, yeah, um, I don't know. It's a question of, of discernment, isn't it? I guess that that um, God can speak through all sorts of people and act through all sorts of people again and the, the scriptures have examples of, of, of that, don't they? Of, of um, you know, good things good king, things coming about through people who are not necessarily that well motivated or not obviously well motivated. Um, I think it is at least, um, it emphasises the point that, that Tim made a couple of minutes ago, though, that um, perhaps it's it's what the sign points to that's important sometimes rather than, than the sign itself. Um, yeah, I don't really have much more to say about yeah, that, I'm afraid, without a, a doing a lot thought. of thinking. So the, um... Uh, I know that there's a difference in the miracles that we're talking about as well and the fact that the miracles that, that affirm a saint are ones that are, are performed after the saint has died. So um, it, it is actually possible that a person falls from grace. Um, so the, the examples that you have mentioned are not, not exactly within this uh, scope because um, Caiaphas, you know, he was speaking 
in the in the place of the high priest so he prophesied then um so that that's a different case but then if we take the the scripture from revelation you have um these people who performed all these miracles and jesus says to them depart from me because i did not mm. know you and um i think that's quite different to what happens in the the uh kind of confirming of of mm. a saint the person has lived a holy life they've died and then an inquiry goes into whether this person is in heaven and intercession is made and if we receive an answer to that prayer in the form of a miracle we have the affirmation that that person is in heaven um and so that that becomes a sign after the fact of their death um that they haven't fallen from grace and that they have gone into heaven in a state of grace and they're interceding for us there in heaven um so that's about all we have time for i think no excellent <laughs> no excellent answer i i have you know i hadn't thought of that yeah um so that's yeah that kind of thank you alessio i hope i hope that was helpful to you all right thank you great goodbye um i'm going to squeeze this one in because we we're having to go soon but this was i got a message from anna whitehead who's been listening in and says that I'm greatly enjoying the reassuring voice of Sister Anne coming through the sound waves. And here is a question. Um, ministering to chaotic students might perhaps be the complete opposite to the life of her hermit or contemplative life. <laughs> what have been some of the joys and surprises you've found serving in the chaplaincy? And you have one and a half minutes to tell oh us. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Uh, well, Anna knows she's sort of seen me, seen me at my best and my worst, and 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 seen me through a lot of this. I think I'm constantly surprised by by Fisher House and and the, the wonderful things that the students do. Um, the most recent one, therefore, the one that's in my mind and can talk about most quickly, is every year we have um, we have stations of the cross most Fridays during Lent most years, but every year we have an evening which we call the creative stations of the cross and people bring to that um poems they've written sometimes pieces of music they've written sometimes uh, prose reflections they've written on the various stations 14 traditional stations of the of the cross and what moves me beyond anything about that is that the students who write these things are also very definitely not living the lives of hermits they're living mm. they're doing what students should do they're living full and exciting and rich and vibrant lives in cambridge um interacting with with their peers uh working studying and yet they in all of this there's a kind of a contemplative stillness in some of these pieces of writing that actually moves me to tears. I was, I was, we had it, unusually this year it was on a Wednesday, so it was a couple of days ago, and I was literally, I was, as it were, leading it, and it was very difficult for me to lead it because mm. quite often I couldn't say the, the, the prayers I needed to say because I was struggling not to cry. Um, well, there you are. I'm going to have to catch you off right now, right there. But thank you so much. Um, it's been um, lovely having you on the program. Shall we say a glory be and, and call indeed. it a day? Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was, as in, the it beginning, was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without world end. end. Amen. Amen.